0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing The Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates joins The Post to discuss the pressing foreign policy priorities for the Biden administration, including the relationships with Russia, China, and Iran. Let's listen.
1: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Our guest today is Robert Gates, a rare bipartisan figure in American foreign policy. He served as CIA director for one president, uh, George H.W. Bush, and as Secretary of Defense for two presidents from different parties, President George W. Bush uh, and Barack Obama. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome to Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks, David. It's great to be with you.
1: Good, good, good to have you. Let's start with the breaking news. Just in the last hour, uh, the CIA report on the murder of Our Washington Post colleague, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, has been released, uh, and it says that uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, approved the operation that led to uh, Jamal Khashoggi's death. Let me ask you first, as a former CIA director, do you think it's a good thing that the CIA report uh, is released? And second, do you think it's sufficient simply to put that information out there as a way of holding? Uh, Mohammed bin Salman accountable for what happened.
0: The thing I like to remind intelligence professionals about is that uh, the information and analysis that they develop uh, is actually not theirs, but belongs to the president. And it's up to the president to decide how he wants to use, use it. It was President Reagan that decided to declassify uh, intercepted messages to demonstrate Libyan responsibility for a terrorist attack on American troops in Berlin in 1986. So I think this was a presidential decision in the context of uh, his overall foreign policy. I think um, that it's a legitimate uh, decision for him to make. And and frankly, given all the speculation and and so on and in all honesty, all the leaks that occurred uh, when the report was first completed and still classified. Uh, I think I think it was uh, entirely appropriate to go forward with it. and and I think I think the way, based on what I've read in the papers, the President laid the predicate for the release with his, in his conversation with the king, and in the broader context of the relationship was was also the right thing to do.
1: The goal of the Biden administration seems to be to recalibrate the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but not rupture it. And I want to ask you, you've been watching Saudi Arabia for a long time uh, in, in, in government and, and since. Do you think that it's possible to maintain a, a tenable, viable, long-term relationship with the kingdom? And what changes, what, what recalibrations would you like to see?
0: I think that the, uh, the approach the administration has taken so far uh, seems to me be about the right balance. They're continuing to uh, provide Saudi Arabia with the defensive weapons that they need in, in a very dangerous part of the world, and particularly uh, in light of uh, Iranian activities. Um, we clearly have some strategic interests in common in the region, uh, but that doesn't prevent us uh, and shouldn't prevent us uh, from speaking out on human rights issues. This has been characteristic of American pol- foreign policy for a very long time. And so it, it really is, a, uh, as I read someplace, a threading of the needle of, of how do you preserve uh, a, a relationship that is strategically important to both countries uh, and at the same time uh, carry out a foreign policy that is consistent with our values. Mr.
1: Secretary, let
0: me turn to to
1: the state of of our nation. Uh, we've been through one of the most, maybe the most uh, turbulent elections in our in our history. We've had a an insurrection, a riot at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, recent polls say that uh, a majority of Republicans still think, despite the lack of evidence that the election victory of President Biden was fraudulent. I want to ask you uh, how you think uh, our new president uh, is doing after just over a month in office. Uh, How's President Biden doing in trying to put this fractured country back together?
0: Well, I think in terms of of his rhetoric and, uh, uh, and his overall approach, I think he sounded the right uh, the right notes uh, in terms of being a unifier, I often get asked, you know, what's the greatest uh, danger to America today? And, and I say it's not a foreign threat. It's our paralysis and our polarization here at home. If we can't figure out a way to tackle the big problems facing this country, whether it's infrastructure or immigration or education or a host of others, uh, then then I think uh, we're in deep trouble, and and that's much more of a danger to the country than any foreign threat, far more than Russia or China. And and the question is whether we can uh, get past that. I, I like to say that the biggest threat is confined to the two square miles that encompass the White House and the Capitol building. And if uh, if the president can't figure out a way and if the Congress congressional leaders won't figure out a way to respond in terms of working together on some things, then I think I think that the the, the divisiveness that we've seen and the dangerous division divisiveness that we've seen uh, probably will only get worse. So it, it's not just up to the president. It's also up to the leadership uh, on the Hill. And that's both Republicans and Democrats.
1: Let me ask you, as a former Secretary of Defense, just how deep you think the divisions go, in particular among the military, among veterans, among people who associate with the military community. As you know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has ordered to stand down, to try to get a better sense of, of what kind of extremism is there in the ranks. Uh, and and, and among uh, military people generally. What's your instinct about that? Do do you think that the military is as divided as the country as a whole? And what do we do about that? How do we get uh, uh, officers and and soldiers, uh, sailors, to to all be rowing in the same direction?
0: I'd start with the the reality that I think uh, that our military uh, and the views within our military are a reflection of the views of our population as a whole, uh, and that's a good thing in many respects. That that our military has as diverse a point uh, people in our military have as diverse a point of views on various issues facing the country as the country as a whole. Uh, you know, it'll be almost 10 years uh, since I left, uh, stepped down as secretary. And, and during my time in office, uh, under both President Bush and President Obama, we really didn't have a sense of, uh, of a problem with, uh, with extremism. I think partly it was that uh, until recent years, uh, that kind of extremism was kept more hidden and there were, people were less public about those views. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that is, was as uh, present at that time as it is uh, in the news and in people's consciousness as it is today and i think what what secretary austin is doing in terms of sort of not just not just sort of Going back and saying you know extremism of, of any kind is wrong and we support the Constitution, but reminding people of uh, reminding uh, people in uniform of their oath and that that oath is to the Constitution and not to a particular party or to a particular individual. So, I think it's going to be a tough problem uh, to to deal with. Uh, I I have a feeling that it's uh, it's a presence. How big it is, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, But I I believe that the vast majority of people who wear the uniform of the country uh, totally support their oath to the Constitution and and are not extremists. I I think this, uh, whatever the size of the group, it's a very small minority.
1: If you were uh, Secretary of Defense today, would you consider uh, issuing new rules that limit what members of our armed forces who've sworn that oath uh, can say on social media? I think that's one of the trickiest questions that's embedded in this debate. W- what's, your, what's your gut tell you about that?
0: Well, there are, you know, there are limitations in terms of what people in uniform can say and do uh, because of military discipline. Uh, by the same token, as you suggest, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, um, decision in terms of where do you where do you maintain good order and discipline and unit cohesion and where do you begin to infringe on uh, a soldier's uh, individual first amendment rights to to speak his mind i think that the first i think that the first threshold where you can take action and where you can uh, uh, have some pretty serious consequences is on is anybody who advocates violence uh, or anyone who supports those who advocate violence? Uh, I think that's a threshold that that is uh, easier to understand than simply expressing support for a particular point of view or another So we try uh,
1: on Washington post live to turn uh, to our viewers for their questions and we have one from uh, Nathan Talbot, who lives in Florida, who asks a, a question that's a, it's a pretty blunt one, but for a, a, a former Secretary of Defense under uh, uh, Republicans, did did Donald Trump wreck the Republican Party? Uh, pretty 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 blunt, as I say. What what's your <laughs> feeling? As you look at the party, uh, state of some disarray. Uh, what's your feeling about what's ahead?
0: Well, I I would say domestic politics has never been one of my particular strengths, David. But I would I would say this: I think that what President Trump tapped into in America was um, a broad band of disillusionment among a lot of Americans that the the establishment, that politicians of both parties had ignored their interests, had ignored their values, uh, and had not taken them seriously. And and basically that they had been sidelined. And and these are people who have culturally conservative views. Uh, It is people who have held blue collar jobs that have disappeared either through technology or or through globalization. Uh, And I think think people uh, felt Abandoned, and so I think you're you're seeing this interesting switch. Leave President Trump out of the picture of the Republican Party actually becoming more of a blue-collar uh, uh, party than it has ever been in its history, and and uh, and the Democratic Party more a party of the suburbs and and urban areas. So there's a big there's a big issue here that goes beyond. President Trump and and uh, sort of the fate of the Republican Party. I think that both parties face some big challenges, and that is how do how do either how do both of them take into account the concerns of among other things those 73 million people that voted for President Trump last November that that go beyond the rhetoric and go beyond the tweets, but get at issues that affect uh, Americans on a day-to-day basis. And I think, that, I think that both parties are trying to figure out how to do that. But, you know, both parties over decades, David, I mean, all these jobs were being lost in the Midwest. And where were the, where were the national programs from either Democrats or Republicans for, for uh, apprenticeships, for retraining and through community colleges or partnerships through community colleges and companies? Uh, neither party really took those problems seriously. and And so we are where we are, as the saying goes. so i I think I think the Republican Party does face some challenges. But the interesting thing also about the election last last fall was they did pick up seats. And they also did pretty well uh, improve their performance at least at a pretty low level among um, Hispanics and among African Americans. So, I think, that, I think the question is kind of where do the parties go from here in a way that tries to bridge um, to the people who voted for President Trump and, and say, you know, we actually understand uh, what your concerns are. And by the same token, um, the, um, the Republicans figuring out how to expand that base. President Biden
1: often talks in those terms about reaching out to the people who didn't vote for him. We'll, we'll see how he does with, with that, but that's a that's a helpful examination of the, of the question. Let me turn, Ms. Secretary, to something you and I have talked about uh, many times over the years, and that's the problem of Afghanistan, now America's longest war. Uh, President Biden's facing a very difficult choice. We have a May 1 deadline that was negotiated by the, Trump administration for the withdrawal of the remaining 2,500 U.S. soldiers from Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden's being warned that if he he withdraws those troops, uh, there's every chance that uh, the government in Kabul um, uh, might Uh, be unable to cope, might be overwhelmed, and that Afghanistan might be plunged back into an all-out civil war. So his choice is either to meet the deadline, pull the troops out, uh, keep them there for a while, a limited period that maybe he could negotiate with the Taliban, uh, or leave them there indefinitely for what could be a long period. You know that Afghanistan problem, as well as anybody who's been in government. I'm curious what advice you would give President Biden, what you think is the right thing to do in this very difficult op- set of options.
0: You know, David, I worked for eight presidents and the one thing that I came away with was that uh, uh, almost every decision that a president has to make His choice is to figure out what's the least bad option he gets if he can he can he can decide on. Uh, You know, the 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 reality is that if there were simple solutions to a lot of these problems, somebody at a lower level would make that decision and take the credit for it. So usually just bad options end up on the president's desk. My view is that. I think the steps the president has taken in terms of of, uh, hinting that we might not pull the rest of our troops out on the 1st of May is exactly right. I think that uh, we do need to take into consideration the possibility of having a presence in Afghanistan at, at roughly the current level, or maybe even slightly more, along with our NATO allies. So the NATO allies have, I think, about three times twice to three times as many troops in Afghanistan as we have. They're very supportive of the mission. The Germans and, and others are supportive of that mission. And, and I think that we may be in a position where we have to tell ourselves we will have a, an ongoing presence in Afghanistan for, for some period of time. The problem that we have is the problem we've had all along, and that is the corruption of the Afghan government uh, and And the Afghan military forces. You know, the I still read reports of how Afghan commanders skim the salaries off uh, from their soldiers uh, and other troops. Uh, and 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 it obviously uh, takes away any uh, motivation that those soldiers have to to sacrifice. We've seen the Afghans willing at the same time to die for their country. They've, they've suffered some tremendous losses, both in their police and their army over the past couple of years. But I think I, my own personal view, if I were uh, advising, would be to, to convey the signal that uh, we might end up having to have a, a presence there on the ground at a very low level. We have about 2,500 troops there now uh, at somewhere around that level. Uh, for uh, an indefinite period of time, at a, at a minimum, until uh, that presence um, um, forces the Taliban to realize that they can't just um, take all the marbles uh, once we leave. That that uh, that there is a negotiated solution that preserves, at a minimum, some of the gains for women and. Uh, and girls that have been achieved and, and some of the human rights achievements that have been made over the over the last uh, 20 years or so.
1: Thinking about our, our conversation, I went back and reread uh, your memoir, uh, Duty, uh, which, which I wrote about at the time it was published. And I, I came to a passage that's been often quoted uh, since uh, President Biden uh, moved toward toward the White House, just briefly read it, and then I want to ask ask you about it. Uh, it was it was direct? Um, uh, you said Joe is simply uh, impossible not to like. Joe is a man of integrity and capable of hiding what he really thinks. And one of those rare people, you know, you could turn to for help in a personal crisis. Still. I think he's been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Pretty, pretty, pretty blunt. Uh, would you still say that last part? And in particular, the secretary, given that he argued back in 2009 that we ought to be careful about putting more troops into Afghanistan, I wonder if with the passage of time, you think maybe he was right back then that it was it would have been wiser not to put a whole lot more troops into a war that's turned out to be unwinnable.
0: yeah, first of all the the quote really referred especially to um, a lot of issues relating to the cold war and and dealing with the Soviet Union and particularly during the Reagan administration and so on. Truth is, during the Obama administration, uh, the vice president and I, Uh, And if I had one change to make in the book, I would I would say during the Obama administration, um, the vice president and I agreed on almost everything except Afghanistan. We did have a serious difference of view on Afghanistan. And and I think what's been lost in some of the debate is that that the, quote unquote, counterterrorism strategy that. Uh, that he was advocating still called for an increase of somewhere between ten and twenty thousand uh, us troops. So that was the difference. And what I recommended to the President was thirty thousand troops plus an addition from from NATO. Uh, I think that I think that trying the surge was important, I think, as i've as I've subsequently written, I think we believe based on our experience in Afghanistan in Iraq, with the surge, that we felt that if we could provide some greater security, particularly in the south and in the east, that uh, it would give the Afghan government uh, the opportunity to uh, strengthen itself, uh, expand and strengthen its uh, armed forces, and be able on its own uh, to manage the Taliban. I think that the continuing problems of uh, the ha- safe havens in Pakistan and, as I mentioned earlier, the corruption of the Afghan government uh, contributed to that not turning out the way uh, we had hoped. I think the other piece that has been lost is that with that uh, increase, with that surge in Afghanistan, we also significantly narrowed the mission uh, in terms of what, was, uh, what I used to refer to as Afghan good enough which was basically to give them the capacity to defend themselves against the Taliban and, and put the notion of creating a modern country and a modern government uh, on the sidelines, that that was too ambitious uh, for the amount of time we had. So I, I think that uh, we needed, you know, I don't think any president has ever debated a single decision on foreign policy more thoroughly or more at length than President Obama did in the fall of 2009 over, over this, uh, over this uh, question. And, and, uh, and so I think all of the ramifications, all the downsides, everything was uh, debated at great length. I think the president still made the right decision uh, under those circumstances.
1: Another big issue before President Biden is what to do about Russia. In the wake of a new examination of the cyber espionage hacking campaign we call Winds, in light of the conviction imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, after the attempt to poison him you you uh, began your time as as a CIA analyst as a as a Russia expert, and I'd be interested in in what you think is appropriate. the The administration's considering additional sanctions against Russia, but there are an awful lot of sanctions in place already, and you wonder whether more sanctions is going to make a, a significant difference what's what's your f- feeling about how? Uh, President Biden not to deal with the, the phenomenon of of Putin's Russia.
0: Well, David, I think that I think first of all, Putin's Russia is a is like the Soviet Union, a um, uh, a unidimensional power. Uh, the only source of its power, really, uh, is its military and its ability, and and including in that is cyber capabilities and its ability to disrupt and and create problems not only on its periphery in places like Georgia and, and Ukraine and Belarus, but also uh, problems in, uh, in the Western democracies. Uh, I think, I, I, and this is going to be a problem, Russia is going to be a challenge for the United States, a national security challenge for the United States, and maybe in some respects the most dangerous one, um, for the, as long as uh, Putin is there. And I think I think frankly that more economic sanctions, broadly based, uh, are not going to do much good. As you as you mentioned, there's already a lot of sanctions. But I think there are a couple of categories of things that we could be much more aggressive uh, about. And the first is uh, targeting the people around Putin and the oligarchs that support him uh, in ways that make it very painful for them, whether it's Uh, seizing their assets in the West, whether it's forcing their families and children who may be students in the West to return to Russia. Um, If you want to have a government that attacks democracy in the West, well, then you can't be a part of the West. You have to go back to Russia and stay there. Uh, So I think a more targeted sanctions approach on those around him who are his enablers so that they see real consequences, personal consequences for uh, supporting Putin, uh, I think, is important. The same thing is in trying to unearth uh, his own holdings in the West uh, that are held through his property uh, ownership and so on. That's held through whole uh, cutouts and other uh, companies and so on. Uh, to make this very personal with the Russians in terms of if they want to mess with us, they're going to have they're going to be personal consequences for them. More broadly, I think we need to be more aggressive with our own cyber capabilities. And I'm not talking about taking down the Soviet grid or their financial system or anything like that. What I'm talking about is actually doing the kinds of things they've been doing to us. How do we figure out using our technology to get through their firewalls and communicate directly with the Russian people about the corruption of their government, its foreign aggressiveness, and more? How do we, if if Alexei Navalny can put a video on on the Internet uh, about taken with a drone about Putin's palace on the Black Sea and get 100 million views, surely with all of our capabilities, uh, we can get that information even more broadly within the Soviet Union or within Russia. You know, this is what we did in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. We, we in, in a very low, at a very low level of technology, but we, we infiltrated millions of books like the Gulag Archipelago and magazines about Russian uh, history and, and about democracy and about the depredations of their government and what they were doing in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. This was a huge program for the American government. And we had an overt part of it that was run by USIA and we had a covert part it was run by CIA. Well, using our new technologies, we need to do the same thing. And if, you know, if Putin thinks that he can interrupt or disrupt our democracies and try and disrupt our democracies, and it's not just the United States, it's France and Germany and Britain and so on where, where the Russians have been doing this. It seems to me we ought to be much more creative uh, much more imaginative about how we go back at the Russians, in the same vein that they've come at us, uh, because believe me, I think that they are a lot more vulnerable. That's a fascinating uh, perspective. It could only have come from a former
1: CIA director, I suspect. So, let me, we're, so many questions I wanna ask you, but let me ask a question about China. And I'm gonna draw again on a, a question that one of our viewers sent in, because it goes right to the heart of security issue. Uh, David uh, Fast from Wisconsin, uh, asks how critical is the threat of China towards taiwan what's what's your uh,
0: gut tell you about about how vulnerable Taiwan is yeah i think I think it's a really dangerous situation. I, I think in the broader context of the um, multi-dimensional uh, rivalry between the United States and China um uh, the the situation with respect to Taiwan is the one that worries me, and I think many people the most. She uh, has committed himself to bringing Hong Kong and Taiwan both back uh, into integrating them back into China. Uh, both while he is still in office. This would sort of put him in the same pantheon as Mao as having finished the revolution of 1949. And, and I worry that as China builds its military strength, uh, that that there is the risk of, of uh, either a move on their part that they think they can get away with, Or of an unintended uh, confrontation that escalates. They've been uh, entering the Taiwan Air Defense Identification Zone. They've crossed the median line in terms of uh, that they that they had observed for a very long time in terms of flying their fighters and bombers uh, in near Taiwan. They've they've uh, sent uh, warships uh, through the Taiwan Straits and around Taiwan. So a lot of threatening gestures. and, and I, you know, one alternative would be whether she would think he could seize some Taiwanese administered islands that are actually quite close to China. Um, as we had a crisis over uh, Kimo and Matsu back in the 1950s under President Eisenhower. Uh, but seize one of those islands and basically say, and, and it'd be very hard to galvanize American support. Uh, to try and retake those islands, so it would be a kind of a nibbling strategy, if you will. Uh, I think there are other things China can do that would uh, create great pressures on Taiwan, whether it would be a quarantine uh, to prevent more weapons from going in there, or try to do so, and and that might provoke a confrontation with the United States. So I think this is a really a really dicey situation, and 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 frankly, I think this is a place given where. President Xi is headed that we ought to think seriously about whether it's time to uh, abandon our longtime strategy of strategic ambiguity toward Taiwan and basically tell uh, the Chinese, that if unprovoked, they take actions against Taiwan, the United States will be there to support Taiwan, and at the same time tell the Taiwanese if they take actions unilaterally toward to change the status quo, to go for independence or something like that, they'll be on their own. Uh, I think that's a that's a discussion that, that we ought to have. But I think of all of the uh, avenues where we are going to be uh, uh, facing off with China, and and trying to deal with challenges, this is the one that concerns me the most. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I
1: really regret that's all the, the time we have. But, uh, Ms. Secretary, thank you so much for for joining us for a great discussion.
0: My pleasure, David. Always.
1: So, uh, please uh, join us uh, for Washington Post live programs next week. On Monday at noon, I will be talking with the former CEO of General Electric, Jeffrey Immelt. Uh, We have lots more programming uh, ahead for you next week. Uh, Please uh, join us on Washington Post Live. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.